So, the quarantine more or less started in March. We have made it through April, and now here we are. We indeed made it to May. And if you don't get that joke, email Greg from the class before us. He will explain it all to you. Also, it is May 3rd. May I wish all of you out there happy May the 4th. And indeed, may the 4th be with you. To everyone who also gets that joke, I hope you also understand why that is wrong. If you don't understand either that joke or the one before, once again, email Greg. He will be very happy very happy to explain it to you, I'm sure. In all seriousness, we do uh, hope that even in the midst of this quarantine and isolation, that May for you is off to a good start, and it continues to be a good month that will only get better. Whatever that looks like for you, I do wish that upon you. And I want to share something with you about our May and about our year. We started out this year wanting to focus on 2020 kingdom vision, wanting to focus on what it looked like to reclaim for ourselves anything that we've lost or anything that we've changed, or really wanting to reclaim what God's vision for the church looked like. Well, we, like many of you, and most everyone, didn't foresee a pandemic happening in the middle of the beginning of this year. And so obviously our preaching for the last couple of weeks is being geared towards that. And I hope that that's been appropriate. I hope that that has blessed you. But looking forward, as I've talked about almost every Sunday, it's constantly, even in normal circumstances, I don't want to say the bane, but it's the constant pressure of what are we going to preach every Sunday. After all, Sundays are every week now, believe it or not. And come Sunday morning, many of us across the world and country are tuning in at whatever time, expecting something worthwhile uh, from us preachers. And that's a struggle and a pressure which I welcome. Obviously, this is what I do. Looking at this month, I wanted to reclaim, as it were, our theme for the year, but definitely make it appropriate for the circumstances. And so I was thinking to myself, what would be something worthwhile that definitely addresses the pandemic, addresses everyone's situation, but also addresses us getting us back to our theme year? And I thought to myself this question, what is worth studying, even isolated in the midst of our pandemic, which still focuses our vision on the kingdom, focuses our vision on what it means to be the kingdom, what it means to be the people of God, what it means to be the church, what it means to still make the church the church in the midst of things that can still carry us through until after the pandemic, Lord willing. After all, whatever we preach can't just affect each of us in our own personal lives, it still has to be something that affects the church because we're still the church regardless of if we're assembled or not. But it also is something that has to be the same even after, hopefully, Lord willing, once again, we can reassemble together. And I thought and prayed and I settled on wisdom. Because after all, the wisdom of God is something that every, as we'll explore, every page of the Bible speaks of. And after all, it's truly wisdom, not just knowledge, that affects kingdom living. Knowing something about the kingdom does not mean you are wise in it. 
although being wise in the kingdom demands that we know it. These are all things that I hope that we can unpack in the coming weeks. And so, thinking offhand, well, what just is wisdom? Well, I, if you Google what is wisdom, a couple platitudes, a couple pithy sayings come up. This is a very, very famous one that's well known. Knowledge attributed here to Miles Kingdon. Knowledge is knowing that tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. As someone who doesn't really like tomatoes, except in their uh, pasty, sugary form, ketchup, I'll take your word for it, and we'll leave it at that. Something else that came up, knowledge is being aware of what you can do. Wisdom is knowing when not to do it. That actually is fairly close to what we'll talk about today. One or two more, knowledge is knowing what to say. Wisdom is knowing when to say it. I can guarantee all of us probably have some instance in which either we know that from personal experience, either be the one saying it or the one hearing it. What is wisdom? This comic came to mind, and as someone who is in the midst of taking some advanced education and feeling for our OSU students, the line goes, what, you seriously didn't study for the test at all? Second frame, I'm telling you, it's fine. I borrowed my brother's cloak of wisdom. The teacher says, I have 30 minutes. You have 30 minutes. He clamps it on. He gains wisdom and goes, I should have studied. <laughs> Hopefully, you haven't been there, but maybe you have. Wisdom is sometimes only gained by sometimes doing the wrong thing. There are many other things that come up. Wisdom is knowledge, or knowledge is, is learning. Wisdom is experience, all of these things like that. And there are probably many things that we could say as far as wisdom goes. One of the things that actually came to mind in this is when it comes to raising children. Knowledge is knowing when your adorable, wonderful six-month-old daughter has a dirty diaper. Wisdom is maybe handing her off to your spouse at the appropriate moment. Now that's a joke. It's a true joke. None of you disagree with me who have had kids. You know. <laughs> Regardless. There are many things that we could probably say are wisdom as opposed to knowledge. That how we gain it, how we live it. But let's get on the same page here. One of the things that may surprise you, as a matter of fact, is while we tend to have the wisdom books of the Bible, the wisdom category, which are Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, some Psalms, Song of Solomon is debated, Song of Songs, uh, Lamentations, these are the wisdom books, Job. Would it surprise you to learn that Scripture itself actually speaks of more than that as wisdom. Consider Psalm 119, a couple verses from Psalm 119. Now, Psalm 119 is 176 verses. The whole thing actually speaks of this, but we're going to look at a few excerpts because we can't keep going forever and ever and ever. Amen. Although I would love to. Psalm 119, 66 and 6 through 68 says, Teach me wisdom and knowledge because I trust your commands before I suffered. I did wrong, but now I obey your word. You are good, talking to God, obviously, and you do what is good. Teach me your demands. Then a little bit later in 104 through 106, I gain wisdom from your laws. And so I hate all bad conduct, light from the law of the Lord. Your word is a lamp to guide me and a light for my path. I will keep my solemn promise to obey your just instructions. Now what is Psalm 119 actually speaking about? He talks about your commands, your laws, your decrees, and other places. He keeps saying your word, your law, your word, your law, your word, your law. He's talking and actually saying as other places in Scripture actually does, that the entire Hebrew Bible, the entire Old Testament is what we would call it, 
is actually wisdom literature, more or less. It's from where you gain wisdom and from and how you can gain wisdom and where you go to attain wisdom. What's more, this is actually an extremely historical thought. Now we don't have time to get into all the history of that, but this is actually how Jewish, not just the historical document, the whole so, the wisdom section in our Bibles is actually a fairly modern construct. Wisdom literature was found, wisdom was found all throughout Scripture. And I think that's an obvious statement, but it's worth saying, because if all of Scripture, more or less, is wisdom, what is all of Scripture based on? Well, over and over and over again, I sometimes joke about it, over and over and over again, do we find that wisdom, or do we find that every story, including wisdom, comes from the beginning? Genesis 1, 2, and 3, everything in Scripture ropes back to there. And we want to start today, as was already read by Jim, we want to start today in Genesis 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain in the earth, and there was no one to work for the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then man, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden and there he put the man he had formed the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food and in the middle of the garden with the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of of good and evil. Now I want you to focus on just this statement for a second. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life. Now why might that detail be significant? Well, we have to realize that while Genesis was written long before most of the Bible, the rest of Scripture and the rest of the not just history and narrative, uh, struggle of mankind as we'll find out, but many things are based on the structure of the garden. And as a matter of fact, later on, the tabernacle and even the Jewish temple is based on the structure of the garden. In fact, on both tabernacle and in the temple around the Holy of Holies where you go to meet God, you had garden imagery carved into the woodwork. I say this to say is that for the purposes of this story and this sermon, not only do we look at the garden as the ideal, not only do we look at the garden as that which God created first, but the garden, you have to realize, is the first holy of holies, the first temple, as it were, where you go to meet God, where you go to see God, where God's presence was. And in the middle of the, tr of the garden was the tree of life. Just remember this. Put it in the back of your head, roughly about there, and we'll come back to it in just a few minutes. Continuing on in Genesis 2, starting in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now notice a couple things here too. Notice the mission of the man and then eventually the woman who joined him in that to work it and to take care of it. God's original command to man 
was to steward the garden, to rule over the garden, to have dominion over the earth, to have stewardship, not to rule over it with an iron fist and, and, and take it over and conquer it, but to care for it. This is a good God creating a good creation and creating his image in it in order to take care of it and steward it. And notice what else. The Lord says to the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. I bring this up because sometimes we confuse this narrative, especially when it comes to later on with the tree of good and evil, and we confuse it by thinking, if you don't eat from the tree of good and evil, if you don't make the bad choice, then you are free to eat from the tree of life. Notice here what he says. Notice that God says you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, including the tree of life. What does this tell us? It actually tells us that eternal life, we learn in the next chapter that they eat of it, they will live forever. Eternal life was God's original gift to humans. Notice there's no stipulation here. There's no if then. There's no I will if you. There's no covenant. It's you are free to eat from any tree in the garden and turn in the tree of life, but you will not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Only one does he ever put any stipulation on. The tree of life was always meant to be where mankind would come and meet God and receive the gift of eternal life. The garden is good. The tree is good. It's full of goodness. In the midst of God's goodness is a gift that will sustain man forever with God. Just think of that picture for a moment. What an amazing thing. If you wouldn't mind, just for a minute and a half, the gift of eternal life was God's original gift to humanity, we've just discovered. How might this impact our understanding? Before we even go any further, how might this impact our understanding of what it means to be redeemed or rescued from death through Christ's sacrifice? Discuss among yourselves, among you and your spouse, even just think about it and pray about it with God for 90 seconds, if you would. I do pray that those reflection times and discussion times are beneficial for you, and I do invite your feedback on them as well. Feel free to contact us and, and let us know what you think of the format of our services. Moving on in the text, however, notice what he says. After he gives the stipulation that you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, as we mentioned, he does give one stipulation. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now, when we think of the word evil, I don't know about you, but most of us, I think, in fact, I certainly do, most of us tend to imagine not just something which is not good, but when we think of the term evil, we tend to think of moral evil, intrinsic evil. Um, maybe you think of someone hating someone else, such as Hitler and the Nazis with the Jews. For instance, maybe you think of the Twin Towers uh, attack on 9-11. You think of someone doing something which is morally evil, someone acting in such a way which is harmful or destructive. That's what evil implies. Evil is a very, very charged word. And I bring this up 
Because good, the word good, while it can mean moral good or inherent good, good has such a wide range of meanings. Have you ever thought about this? Good can mean pleasant. I went for a good walk. Good can mean enjoyable. Same thing. I, I had a, a good dinner last night. I had a pleasurable experience at some point, whether it's a, a good bath or, or a good workout. The thing about good, the word good is that in our language especially, it has such a wide range of meaning. It can mean something morally and sacrificially good, such as a soldier giving his life, or not to mean that by any means, but it can mean a good cause for a soldier, or it can mean a good brownie. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, because the Hebrew words for good and what is usually translated evil has the same wide range of meanings. And we know this from other places. For example, in Jeremiah uh, 24, 1b through 3, it says, The Lord showed me two baskets of figs placed in front of the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like those that ripen early. The other basket had very bad figs, so bad they could not be eaten. The Lord asked me, What do you see, Jeremiah? Figs, I answered. The good ones are very good, but the bad ones are so bad they cannot be eaten. Now the words for good and bad here are the same words from Genesis chapter 2. And I bring this up because we need to include this range of meanings. The same words for bad figs, would you translate here evil figs? Now, if you don't like figs, maybe. <laughs> but it doesn't make sense to translate evil figs. The figs are morally neutral. Now, they are representing evil kings, but that's a different thing. The figs here, as figs, are morally neutral. So we have to keep in mind that the two words that are talked about here, which in Hebrew are for bad, the word ra, or for good, the word tob, are the same ones used here, and they have a wider range of meanings. For example, Proverbs 25, 19. I can relate with this one. Like a bad tooth <laughs> and an unsteady foot is confidence in a faithless man in a time of trouble. That word bad is ra. Now, when's last Wednesday night, whenever I was unconscious, I didn't realize I was even moaning in pain. Maybe I would call my tooth evil. You evil tooth, how dare you do this to me? But we know that the tooth is morally neutral. It's not trying to attack us. In fact, you know, it's a bad tooth. It's not, it's a not good tooth. It has a wide range of meanings. One more, for example, Psalm 140. It can mean evil. This one, rescue me from the wicked, O Lord. We sing that sometimes. This word evil, this also means, this is the word ra. Ra can mean everything that good can, from evil, morally bad, to bad as in not good, uh, destructive, uh, ouch, everything like that. This is important to realize because even God does ra. Once again, back in Jeremiah, he is telling Jeremiah that if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will, re I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. Now, this word evil is ra, but this word for disaster here in the New American Standard is also ra. Ra cannot always mean moral evil because God does ra. When he does it, however, for instance, here judging a nation, the nation is interpreting it as disaster and we have to realize something which is good to do can sometimes be interpreted or be um, from their perspective a bad thing such as God's judgment upon the nations when Babylon was coming in Jerusalem no Jew, I'll bet, thought who 
way. They went, this is raw. This is very raw. Even God does raw. So that has a wide range of meanings. And so when it comes, my whole point of saying this, when it comes to the tree of knowledge, several other scholars tend to take this viewpoint, and I agree with them, that perhaps the best way of describing it is not necessarily the tree of good and evil, but the tree of good, Tob, and the tree of bad, Ra, the tree of good, of the knowledge of good and bad. That's how I'm going to refer to the rest of this sermon, probably the rest of this series for these exact points. Now, it begs to wonder, well, what exactly about the tree is good or bad? What exactly about knowledge is good or bad? And that's a fair question. This is the direction that we have to ask of the text. Well, refer back, if you would. Remember back, we read it already, but here it is again. Genesis 2.15. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and care of it, to steward, to be his image in the physical world, to rule it well, to be the image of God. And we know from the example of the garden that they were supposed to be rulers with God, to rule this world, but with God as their king, God as their head. Does this mean that Adam and Eve, although they're meant to be eternal originally, is what this implies, this mean that Adam and Eve would never have wisdom, would never have the knowledge of good and evil? Well, in order to be good rulers, it makes sense that you have to have that wisdom, that knowledge. Consider for a moment also the rest of Scripture, which is based on these few chapters. And consider the only other three parts of Scripture, which this phrase, Tob and Ra, good and evil, exactly in Hebrew, it's a phrase, appears. First one is in Deuteronomy 139. And the little ones you said would, not, would be taken captive, your children who do not yet know good from bad, they will enter the land. I will give it to them and they will take possession of it. Now these are out of context. I will grant you that. This is just to show you the exact context of where this phrase appears. In Deuteronomy 139, uh, 1 Kings 3, 7 through 9. Now, this is Solomon speaking. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have already chosen, a great people too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. And finally in Isaiah 7, 14 through 16, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And we'll call him Emmanuel, God with us. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Now, we can exegete these passages all the rest of the year. But what I want you to notice is that every time that this phrase is used, which is right here, good from bad, right from wrong, the wrong and choose the right, it's in the context of a child learning how to tell the difference. Do you see that? Let's put it up here again. The little ones, the children who do not yet know good from bad, Solomon is saying, I'm only a little child. Give your heart servant a discerning heart to govern your people and distinguish between right and wrong. Emmanuel, he will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. The fourth one, as I said four, is here. 
in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, from the knowledge of the tree and good, of good and bad. What does this mean? Some believe, and I tend to take this approach as well, obviously I'm preaching it, this teaches us that, as we have seen, man was always supposed to be the caretakers and stewards ruling with God in his world, and to do that well, they would have to learn wisdom. They would have to indeed learn good from bad, right from wrong. The difference is how they would learn it. The difference is how they would gain that knowledge. The difference is what method they would use to attain that knowledge. Later on in Genesis 3, we see some things that are very interesting. And I think this is very much on purpose. In Genesis 3, it says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good... Now, hold on just a minute there. Who up to this point has saw, has seen something, and that it was good? God. Over and over in Genesis 1, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, saw that man was alone, he saw that it was not good, saw he made man and woman, he saw that it was very good. The first character to see something that's good is Eve. And she sees something that is good for food and pleasing to the eye. And look at the next thing. And also desirable for gaining wisdom. Hmm. And finish out this passage. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened. They gained wisdom. And they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. There's an interesting word play here, which we don't get in English, is that the word here for naked and the word used earlier in chapter 3 for shrewd or cunning serpent, they're different words, but they are pronounced exactly the same. And so the arum serpent, but now they realize they were arum. Good wordplay there that we don't have in English. What did they do here? The woman saw that something was good. Wisdom, knowledge of what's good and bad, is good. Also desirable for gaining wisdom. The word for desirable is the Hebrew word chamad. It means to covet. It means to want and 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 further that desire until it becomes something that you just can't live without. So she took some and ate. What is the tree of the knowledge of good and bad? The tree of the knowledge of good and bad to Adam and Eve is actually indicative of the same choice that each one of us have, dare I say, Every day. The tree of the knowledge of good and bad, which is right next to the tree of life in the middle of the garden, is the choice to gain wisdom about ourselves, gain wisdom about life, gain wisdom about our world, gain wisdom about choices, gain wisdom about wisdom, gain wisdom, gain this knowledge either God's way or 
our way or some other way. It's the choice that each one of us have every single day to either come past the tree of good and bad to the tree of life in God's presence to gain that wisdom or to stop and take it ourselves and gain it some other way. And do you notice in the text what happens whenever Adam and Eve chose their way and what still happens to us when we choose our way? Notice in the text that the first consequence of humanity was that they were divided against each other. They realized they were naked. And what was pure and what was clean and what was holy and what was, and what was uniting in them, their nakedness and their innocence, was destroyed. And so now they felt the need to cover themselves even in front of each other and divided themselves, both physically, but also emotionally, mentally, spiritually. Do you notice then, secondly, humanity is divided against God. Now, what does it mean as the wisdom literature that we're familiar with will conclude that the beginning of wisdom, Ecclesiastes said, is to fear God and keep His commandments. Well, there's a healthy fear, but there's an unhealthy fear. A healthy fear of God is to want to love Him and please Him. It's, the, it's a healthy fear of parents wanting to be with Him and wanting to, 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 to be so close to Him that you don't want to you fear disappointing them or you fear laying them down. In the text, what is the fear that Adam has? They hid when they heard God walking through the forest. And he says, I heard you walking in sorrows. I hid because I was afraid. Afraid of what? Afraid of retribution, afraid of consequence. Remember, God had said that if you take of the fruit, you will die. I think Adam here is expecting him, God to kill them. That's the fear that so many people have of God. Even Christians. Instead of looking at God as a good God, we say, God, I don't want you to mess me up. I don't want you to, to clap down on me. God, I'm so afraid of, of, of doing things wrong. And we don't even think of it that way, but our actions say that. Instead of relying on God and saying, God, I want to be so close to you that I don't want to disappoint you. Daddy, Abba. <laughs> Adam was afraid of God and hid And finally, did you notice probably one of the most obvious things is that humanity's division from eternal life. God doesn't kill them. In fact, He provides for them. But yet they are cast out into the realm of sin and death away from the tree of life, away from God's presence, away from accessing the gift of eternal life. If you would, take just a moment and consider for yourselves for 90 seconds what choices have you or do you face daily that offer a choice between God's wisdom or our wisdom? And if you have time, how do we help each other? Either each other who you're with, each other as a family, each other as a church, each other as sister congregations. How do we help each other choose the good God way? 90 seconds if you would.
the natural question that anyone has after reading Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is, well, what, if, what happens? What does God do? And the story of Scripture is someone always coming to a choice between choosing God's wisdom or choosing their wisdom. And over and over again, although some people get God's wisdom sometimes, over and over again as we know, our wisdom is just sometimes too powerful to overcome. And over and over and over there is no one, even though people come close, over and over and over there's someone who seeks to restore that bridge between God and humanity, seeks to restore that relationship who can come and choose God's wisdom and be God's wisdom for us and be that example that in that through their example and they, they can teach us and be that one to get us back in a sense to the garden in the midst of God's presence to continue eating from the tree the gift of eternal life. That's the story of Scripture, brothers and sisters. Over and over and over, people almost get their Abraham, Noah, Moses, David, these people that are flawed, almost get there. But don't. Is it any wonder? <laughs> is it any wonder why in the New Testament Jesus Christ is called our wisdom from God? Like in 1 Corinthians 1.30, but by His doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us the wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Over the next few weeks, we're going to delve into what it means to seek the wisdom of God through Scripture, through Christ's example, and why seeking the wisdom of God as well as His knowledge is the foundation for living a kingdom life in the kingdom of God in 2020 and beyond. Heavenly Father, as we depart from this foundation. I pray that your saints are blessed. I pray that hearts are enlightened or convicted, whatever they need be with this sermon. But above all, God, I pray that from this example, you can make plain to us the choices in our lives which are choosing between our wisdom and your wisdom and give us by your Holy Spirit the courage and the guidance and the strength to choose your wisdom even in the midst of such hard choices this world continually offers that distract us from your gift. Through the grace of your Lord, of Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, we praise you for reopening access to that gift of eternal life that we may still, through the blood of your Son, be the image bearers of your Son in this world as you seek to redeem us and this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.